Really gotta figure this thing out, huh? <laughs> this is two weeks in a row that this thing is giving me trouble. There we go. All right. So, uh, if you missed Heaton's brunch, you missed a good one. Uh, there will there will be pictures up um, of all that you missed, um, and uh, everyone did a great job of bringing awesome food, and we had a great time. Um, and so, if you missed it, please come next month. And uh, all of us here that were there, uh, I think we all loved it. Um, the first thing that we need to do tonight is celebrate Valentina. Um, Navarro, if you guys didn't see on Facebook earlier uh, this week, um, uh, Manny prayed with, uh, with Valentina earlier this week. Uh, she invited Jesus to be her Savior. So, we celebrate you, Valentina. Um, we really need to put our heads together and, uh, and nail down a date for baptism. Because um, now we've got uh, several to be baptized. So, um, that will be coming very shortly. So in the Navarro family, we absolutely love you guys. Um, also, for those of you that are watching on the live stream, I made a mistake this week, and um, I neglected to reorder a very necessary charger for the camera. So if at some point this thing just cuts off, well, stay tuned, and uh, we'll send a link for the podcast. Um, so... We're continuing in our series entitled, Why Is This Even In Here? And we've been looking at odd, strange, difficult, hard-to-understand passages in the Bible. And so, thus far in this series, we've covered two uh, fun stories. We, we first started with the story in the book of Numbers, where a bunch of Israelites get killed by snakes, and then are saved by looking at a statue of a bronze snake fashioned by Moses. Then last week we looked at a weirdly fascinating cult about a guy who stares people, who heals people by staring at them, and how that relates to the even weirder vision in Ezekiel chapter one. Um, so today we're going to be going to the New Testament, and we're we're going to be looking at what has been considered by some to be the most difficult verse to interpret in the entire Bible. Okay, challenge accepted. Um, and not only is this passage difficult, it's, it's, it's also incredibly relevant um, because how we interpret this passage has very, very real ramifications for today. Um, but hopefully by the end of this, you'll be comforted and encouraged rather than wanting to run away from the Bible angrily. Uh, so that is the goal. Um, in 2006, a, a man named Julian Assange, founded a non-profit called WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks' purpose is to take verified, confidential documents and make them public. Um, back in the early 2000s, Assange was writing essays in which he was decrying the author authoritarian rule of governments, which he said are based on secrecy, conspiracy, manipulation, and duplicity. And so, WikiLeaks takes from anonymous sources secret information. Most of the time, this stuff involves uh, matters of national security, um, involving war, spying, corruption, um, and, then, and then publishes those documents online. Um, in 2010, WikiLeaks published a series of documents from a U.S. Army intelligence officer named Bradley Manning, who then later became Chelsea Manning. Uh, these documents included videos of airstrikes in Iraq and Afghanistan. John said no sound. There's no audio whatsoever? Okay, hold on. Let me make an adjustment here, hopefully.
Okay. Oh, that should that should work. Uh, will you? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> now the audio is working for those of you in the um, virtual land. We are celebrating Valentina. <laughs> Yay! Um, yes. Valentina. Um, she prayed to receive Christ this week, and so Navarro family, we love you. That was at the beginning. Um, of course, no one could hear it. So we're going to have a baptism soon. We love you guys. So we're talking about, right now, WikiLeaks. Okay, WikiLeaks, Julian Assange. Um, WikiLeaks has published documents related to toxic waste being dumped in the Ivory Coast, Guantanamo Bay prisoner procedures, CIA documents related to hacking civilian phones and computers, and of course, one that made lots and lots of headlines, confidential emails from politicians. Um, among the most famous dump was a trove of 20,000 plus emails from the Hillary Clinton presidential campaign. And these emails included details on Clinton's relationship with high-profile Wall Street donors, um, the inner workings of the Clinton Foundation, the inner workings of the campaign itself, political gossip, and random notes and quotes from private conversations that had been recorded by Clinton's aides. And so these emails were poured over by conservative and liberal pundits alike, looking for anything that could be construed as unethical, damaging, dishonest, um, or, or, or things of the sort. In 2017, WikiLeaks published more confidential emails, this time from Emmanuel Macron, during his presidential run in France. And he got in trouble for some of the things that were said in, this email, in these emails because it revealed that his public stance on Brexit did not reflect how he truly felt, and uh, that he actually felt the opposite of many of the things that he was saying in public. WikiLeaks has also published emails from the Sarah Palin campaign, and interestingly also, uh, Sony Pictures, um, not sure what relevance that has, um, the British National Party, and the 9-11 attacks. In 2019, Julian Assange was arrested in London after spending the last six years in the Ecuadorian embassy, um, where he had been seeking political asylum. He faces charges of espionage, which no one is shocked about, and, uh, and also sexual assault. There's something about reading someone's emails that's very different than hearing them speaking publicly. Because a public message is carefully crafted, often scripted, a private email is usually far more casual. You, you tend to say what you really think when you believe no one is listening. But many times there's also a confirmation of what the public knows about someone. When they do say in private what they say in public, then that gives a person even more credibility than what they had before. Well, quite often, the difficult task of taking meaning from an email leak is determining details about that conversation that you've now become privy to. Oftentimes, an email leak lacks necessary context. Who is the person writing to? What is the purpose of their message? What's the occasion? What's going on in the world around them? What's specifically going on in their setting? That's, uh, that's creating this need for this communication. When a person uses a situation-specific term, what is that situation-specific term referring to? What are some clues to tip us to what's left unsaid, what's assumed, and, and what's explicitly explained? Right? You can't just take one of these emails out and take it exactly as it's written, especially if it's a part of a conversation that has missing pieces, especially if you're only seeing one side of the conversation. If several emails are sent back and forth and you only see one of them, what are the missing pieces of that conversation that make that email make sense? Sometimes you can read something that seems very jarring, but when you then place it in the thread of a much longer conversation, 
all of a sudden you say, wow, okay, that, that actually makes a lot more sense. And, and so it's easy to run to the headlines with an email that you picked up off the stack. But sometimes after further examination, it's clear that the conclusions that you came to with that message weren't exactly what the author intended. As always, context is key. Today, we're going to take a look at someone's email to one of his protégés. And we don't have the back-and-forth conversation, but we do have some clues to help us determine what this guy is talking about. Because there's part of this email that really rubs us the wrong way. It makes the guy who's writing it seem like a total jerk. But is there a way to understand what he's saying if we do a little digging? I think so. So, we're going to take a look at the Apostle Paul's WikiLeaks. Specifically, his email to a guy named Timothy. So we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. Beginning in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and so come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So, out of this passage, specifically, we're going to look at verses 9 through 15. Uh, specifically at the things that make us cringe. Like in verse 9, modest is hottest. Verses 11 and 12, Ladies, keep your mouth shut. Verses 13 and 14, mansplaining. Verse 15, saved through childbearing. What? So, this is an incredibly difficult passage. We need some tools to help us understand what these are. So, the four essential laws for scriptural interpretation. Quiz time. Throw them at me. Four essential laws for scriptural interpretation. You, sir, in the back. Scripture interprets scripture. Scripture interprets scripture, yes. Genre matters. Genre matters. Yes, it does. The Bible must be read as an ancient document. Yes, the Bible must be read as an ancient document. No difference between prescription and description. Yes. Yes. I love it. So, first and foremost, the Bible must be read as an ancient document. It is the eternal word of God with eternal meaning for all of us. But every single part of the Bible was written by specific people to specific people with a primary purpose in mind. And we have to lay that foundation first before we can take the eternal meaning out. When we say the Bible is to be read as an ancient document, we do not mean that it's only an ancient document. But we have to understand it first as an ancient document. Then we have to see the difference between description and prescription. Is the Bible just describing something or commanding something? Is it saying, this happened? Or is it saying, go ye and do likewise? Because there's a difference. 
genre matters. And we can't read every literary genre in the same way. You can't read poetry the same way that you would read um, a law, a, a narrative, a parable, a pastoral direction, an epistle, or as we see here, um, an email, a letter. You can't read every genre the same way. And then Scripture interprets Scripture. With every single passage, we have to set it in its proper context, know what's going on around it, and look at the clues that are given to us in other places that help us make sense of that here. So, let's take these and put them into practice to understand this passage. Specifically, the most, we're going to be using principles number one and four. Reading the Bible as an ancient document and using Scripture to interpret Scripture. What we have here is an email of sorts, the uh, first century version of an email, um, between Paul and, and Timothy. Now, this isn't a leak in the way that I described earlier email leaks, right? Like, like this isn't something that others aren't supposed to be reading. This is more like the Fauci emails that were released from the Freedom of Information Act. Okay, This is public knowledge, legally obtained. This letter from Paul was meant to be read and learned from. But we do have to recognize that this was a letter from a person to a person at a particular time with specific circumstances that surround it. So just like we have to use those things in an email leak to figure out what the email is saying, we also have to do the same with this email. We have to set some historical and contextual foundation, okay? And to any skeptics who, who might respond to that by saying, oh, well, you're just doing gymnastics to make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, I would say, no, I'm not. I am doing the honest work of understanding a correspondence. Failing to examine context is dishonest, it's lazy, it's disingenuous, and many times it can be flat-out misleading. So, let's start out by laying out historical foundation here. Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is leading the church in Ephesus. We learn from other scriptures that Paul ministered in the city of Ephesus for three years, and then a riot in Ephesus forced him to leave. And we're going to read about that riot later. But after Paul leaves, he sends Timothy to be the leader in that church, to take over the leadership and to train the leaders in the Ephesian church. And so the book of Ephesians and the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are all specifically addressed to what's going on in the ministry in that city of Ephesus. And that's a very important detail that we're going to explore. But before we really get into the details of that, Let's first zoom out and take a whole scripture approach, and then we're going to zoom back in to our problem passage, okay? So if you're taking notes, here is point number one. The Bible is ferociously equitable. The Bible is ferociously equitable. Now, one of the main um, issues that's brought up by so many skeptics of the Bible is the Bible is sexist. The Bible is misogynist. The Bible is patriarchal. The Bible subjugates and, and oppresses women. The Bible seeks to, to silence women. The, the Bible seeks to take men and put them on a much higher plane than women. But what we have to understand is that that, as we read the Bible as an ancient document, that is not true. It is true that the Bible is written in an ancient culture which was sexist. It was patriarchal. In the society in which the Bible is written, and this was true over the many, many years where these different texts are, are being written, women had very little value in most societies. But the Bible consistently goes the other way, in ways that the ancient audience would have found stunning. So let's, let's give a few bullet point examples, okay? From the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, we read the verse, in verse 26, where God says, Let us make man in our likeness and our image. And in our likeness and image he created them. Male and female they were created. So we see there, in the very first chapter of the Bible, God saying, 
men and women, both equally created in the image of God. Different, distinct, but yet both created equally in the image of God. There is no part of that introduction that leads us to believe that men are more important. And we're going to come back to the creation account. As we look specifically at the Apostle Paul, because a lot of times when people say the Bible is sexist, the first place that they go running is Paul's letters. We also have to understand that Paul himself was radically countercultural in the things that he wrote in all of his letters. Imagine, for example, you are sitting in the Ephesian church, and Paul is writing you this letter in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul tells you, as a husband, you are to treat your wife as though she is more important than your very life. That you must give yourself up for her. That you must lay your life down for her. Or imagine being in the city of Galatia. And Paul is writing to the church in Galatia. And he's saying to the church there, There is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He takes every single person there and he puts them on an equal playing field. Did you know, fun fact, that it was common in that day for Jews to pray the following prayer. God, thank you that I was not born, uh, thank you that I was born a Jew and not a Gentile. Thank you that I was not born a slave. And thank you that I was not born a woman. This was a common attitude. And what Paul does is he writes the verse that that I just quoted in Galatians directly in the face of that. There is neither Greek nor Jew, male nor female, slave nor free. You are all one in Christ Jesus. He looks at the people who are trying to put themselves on a higher plane and he goes, "Uh uh-uh, let me knock you down and set you on equal footing with everybody else. Paul's allegiance to Jesus flipped his own Jewish background on its head. When we look at the, the, the history of the early church, especially in the book of Acts, what we learn is that some of the pioneers of the early church, some of the leaders of the early church, some, some of the ministers that are named are women. Women like Lydia. There she is. <laughs> Priscilla. Tabitha. Phoebe. We're going we're to come back to Priscilla later as a teacher of theology. Okay, Some of the 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 leaders of the early church leading the movement of the gospel were women. When we look at the ministry of Jesus, some of Jesus' closest followers, some of the people who are given important roles in in the church are are women. Jesus consistently eschewed cultural expectations about how men relate to women. Think about the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus encounters the woman at the well conversing with her as an equal. She's shocked that he's having this conversation with her. She can't believe that he has the gall to be speaking to her in this way. This is is how Jesus always was. Jesus was a rabbi, okay? Rabbis only accepted men as their pupils. In the first century and before, a pupil of a rabbi could only be a man. And yet, what do we find in places like uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 38? We find Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus as he teaches. And Jesus telling another woman, Martha, this is what you ought to be doing as well. Mary has chosen the good thing. In 1 Corinthians 7, I'm jumping back and forth between Paul and Jesus here. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 2 through 4 Paul makes husbands and wives equals. Uh, I want to read that to you real quick. Uh, I didn't put it on the thing here because uh, I forgot. Um, 1 Corinthians 7. Verses 2 through 4. Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likely the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
He looks at, at two married people and he says, you guys belong to each other. She does not belong to him as a property. He belongs to her just as much as she belongs to him. This is a, an equal partnership. We have to look at the meta-narrative of what Paul consistently teaches. Imagine being a first century man who was, was proud of your salvation, proud of being a follower of God. Imagine being told that your salvation means that you are considered to be the bride of Christ. This is the church. The, the, the picture of the church that Paul continually comes back to, that Jesus continually comes back to, is the church is the bride. That is an honored position of the bride. And so Paul looks at all of, uh, all of the first century men that he's writing to and says, congratulations, you're now a bride. The ancient audience would have been like, not the analogy I would have picked. But that's what Paul picked on purpose. So while it is true that there are differences in our genders, there is no difference in our value. And I wish that I had time to go to each of these scriptures because there are so many, right? In one sermon, we cannot possibly take all of the scriptures that are written on men and women and, and what we are designed for. But it's very clear upon real examination of these things that while there are differences between us, there's no difference in our value. And that when the Bible speaks about roles that are being played, those roles are experiential analogies, not assessments of worth. And, and we've talked many times about experiential analogies, that, that God puts us through these experiences so that we can have a better understanding of his love. Parenthood is an experiential analogy. We, we understand the concept that God loves us as a father loves his children. But until you have a child of your own, it's just a concept. When you have a kid in your hand and you love them so much, even if you want them to just go to sleep, you understand God loves us the way a father loves his children. And so the roles that we're asked to play uh, as, as men and women are experiential analogies, not assessments of work. Here's the thing, in terms of the ancient audience, okay? Women in the ancient audience would have heard the early church's teachings, Paul's teachings on men, women, and marriage, and the women would have said, sign me up. Uh, I want to be a part of that. That is the greatest deal I have ever heard. Because it was the church, it was people like Paul, who were placing women on a higher pedestal than they would have been anywhere. This was radically countercultural. And the women of the first century... Where, where this is being written, would have been enthusiastically signing up to be a part of this. So here's the thing. I wish we could spend more time on everything that's written here, especially all the things that Paul said. And at face value, some of the things that he said are difficult, right? Even Peter said that, all right? One of the funniest verses in the Bible is 2 Peter 3, uh, 15 and 16. So Peter, of course, one of the apostles of Jesus, is writing about the apostle Paul. Okay, In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, uh, he says, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks, to them, uh, when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in there that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable un, uh, unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. I love that Peter, writing about Paul, says, hey, listen, Paul talks about this stuff, and there's some things that Paul says that are hard to understand. Yeah, understatement of the Bible right there. And so even at the time, Peter himself was like, what exactly do you mean by this? But Peter... Uh, uh, we establish here that Paul, I'm sorry, was absolutely pro-women. Women were co-laborers in the gospel. They were given position to pray and prophesy in the church. At times they taught men and they served in ministry roles. Okay, so this is a, a zoomed out picture of scripture. Now let's begin to zoom in. And I want to, uh, I want to point us to something very specific 
about the Ephesian church. The Ephesian church where Timothy was leading. Um, if you look in your Bibles at Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We find here in Acts 18 and 19 the beginning of the Ephesian church. This is the genesis of the church in, uh, in Ephesus. At the end of chapter 18, we find an account about a man named Apollos. Okay? And Apollos comes up later in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about his leadership in the early church. Okay? So Apollos is someone who becomes on the same uh, level in terms of his clout as the Apostle Paul in the early church. And this is the first mention of Apollos. It says in, in verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he helped greatly those who through the grace of God had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So, here we have Apollos, who at the beginning of his ministry didn't have things fully accurate. There, there were some things that needed to be uh, refined. So, who is it that takes Apollos aside and teaches him more accurately the truth of the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila. And it is not by accident that Priscilla is named first. Earlier, Acts 18 tells us that Paul met Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. And it's in Corinth that he began to work with them. And then when Paul left Corinth to continue his missionary journey, he brings them along with him. First they go to Antioch. And then they go to Ephesus. And so Priscilla and Aquila are founding members of the Ephesian church, right alongside Paul. And then they continue ministering alongside Paul for the rest of Paul's life. This couple is named six times in Scripture. And Paul specifically notes them as people who have risked their lives for the church. So, here's the thing. We've read this, this very difficult passage in 1 Timothy about, I do not permit a woman, to, a woman to teach or exercise authority. How is it then, how is it, that here in the book of Acts, chapter 18, we find Priscilla teaching Apollos, under the leadership of Paul, okay? Because these are the people who are leading the early church. Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and Timothy. They're leading. We find in Ephesus, Priscilla... Teaching Apollos. How then would Paul say to Timothy later, yeah, I don't allow that sort of a thing. I'm, uh, I'm against women speaking in any way, shape, or form. That tells us that surely there must be something more going on here in 1 Timothy. There has to be. There's no other way. There has to be something specific that Paul is addressing in 1 Timothy. And as it turns out, Scripture gives us more clues. So, here's point number two. Tainted orthodoxy always leads to tainted orthopraxy. Tainted orthodoxy always leads to tainted orthopraxy. Let me explain what I mean by that. Orthodoxy is about what you believe. Orthopraxy is about how you live it out. And the two are connected. Specifically, orthodoxy is about having right belief, which should lead to orthopraxy or right action. Right belief leads to right action. So, when doctrine becomes tainted, practice becomes tainted as well. These two cannot be separated from each other. Orthodoxy will lead to orthopraxy. And so we have to look at the orthodoxy before we get to the orthopraxy. And what we find as we examine the book of 1 Timothy is that 60% of this book, in terms of the number of verses in this book, in this letter, 1 Timothy, 60% is addressing false teachers 
and Saul's teaching. Over and over and over, Paul is hammering, go against the false teachers. Make sure that the false teachers are, are not infiltrated. There are false teachers there who are trying to lead the people astray. I want you to address the false teaching, Timothy. Over and over and over, 60% of it is about uh, tainted orthodoxy. The other uh, 40% is broken up among the other things, which include orthopraxy. So what kind of false teaching might Paul be addressing as he writes to Timothy? What we find in Acts chapter 19 is a clue. Acts chapter 19 tells us, uh, and we learn this not only from Acts chapter 19, but also just from historical study. Okay, Ephesus is the cultural center for worshiping the goddess Artemis. Artemis is the goddess of Ephesus. And so much of what we find about Ephesus centers on the worship of the goddess Artemis. So let's take a closer look at the riot that we discussed earlier. Uh, Acts chapter 19, verses 23 through 34. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For men named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen, meaning this is a huge part of the economy. Those he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. This guy's like, whoa, 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 Paul is, Paul is, uh, is coming in on our territory, and he's taking away a lot of business. Our business, our trade, is in making uh, these, uh, these idolatrous uh, items for the, the worship of Artemis. And now Paul is telling all of these people that man-made gods are not a thing. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the main cultural proponent of Ephesus is the worship of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was massive. It was one of the things that all of the ancient world had its eyes set upon. Okay, So it is the thing that Ephesus is known for. Right? If you think about the wonders of the world... Every place where there's one of those wonders of the world, that city is almost exclusively identified by that wonder. And that was absolutely the case here. This was uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was a bank at this temple that was the wealthiest bank in the world, holding in it a large percentage of the world's money. And we find there in, in, in Acts chapter 19 that the economy... Uh, of this place was largely centered around the worship of Artemis. So there's some very important contextual items there that begin to give us a clearer picture of what Timothy is dealing with. And again, false teachers are key here. The false teachers that have infiltrated this church are teachers that are tainted with Artemis worship. So, what, what goes into worship of Artemis, and how might that affect what Paul is talking about? 
how might Paul be addressing false teaching that leads then into false living? In part, worship of, of Artemis postulated that women were to be regarded as higher than men. So looking at, at the history of Artemis, they believed that Artemis was the firstborn twin uh, of Apollo. So, so Artemis and Apollo are twins, but Artemis was born first. And, and she was born a, a, a considerable amount of time before Apollos. And these are the two firstborn children of Zeus. And so what they believe is that birth order gives Artemis dominance over Apollos. It means she's the big sister in charge. She is the one who is leading. So that gives us a clue as to why Paul brings up Adam and Eve. Paul brings Adam and, Adam and Eve uh, to correct a gender role imbalance that's based on a wrong teaching of origin. Paul, here in 1 Timothy, addresses the created order, where he says, Adam was formed first, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and, beca and became a transgressor. He is not in this trying to say, everything is Eve's fault and Adam is, is clean. Because over and over and over, Paul refers to the first Adam versus the second Adam. That death came to the world through the sin of Adam and life came through Christ. So here he addresses the created order, not to subjugate women, but to address what's going on in the culture where Artemis worship is leading these people to say, well, women are higher than men because the woman came first. And Paul's like, actually, that's not really what happened. What really happened was Adam came first. And not only did they believe that, uh, that woman came first, they believed that everything got screwed up by Apollos. And so uh, uh, Paul here is like, well, actually, the way that it really happened was Adam was formed first and then Eve, and Eve ate first, not Adam. He was correcting here the, the created order, not to make the point that, women are, that, that men are higher than women, but to make the point that they're created equally, but with different roles. Okay, let me, let me tell you how it actually happened so that we can get to right orthopraxy with right orthodoxy. There's this verse here that has been abused by people um, in conservative circles about adornment, where it says, Likewise, women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or costly pearls or attire. So I was a homeschooler, um, whoopee, and, uh, and that makes me weird, I guess. I was one of the cool ones, okay? If you guys could have seen the homeschoolers in our homeschool group, you would have agreed I was the coolest one there, okay? We believe you. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you for your vote of confidence. Amen. There were people in our homeschool group who took this verse to the extreme, okay? And so women were not allowed to wear pants. Uh, women were not allowed to wear jewelry. Women were not allowed to braid their hair or have any sort of makeup or any sort of costly adornment. Sometimes these women were not even allowed to wear different colors. Okay? It was just the same plain, drab, long dress all the time. And they would specifically look at this verse and say, well, this verse says very clearly women are not allowed to have any kind of adornment like this. But is that what's really going on here? The answer, based on everything that we're talking about, is no. Paul is not saying that adornment is sinful. Paul is specifically addressing part of what's going on in this culture, that the women in this city are going to church in Ephesus, to Timothy's church, in the same way that they would be going to the Temple of Artemis. Because the people that are being saved in Ephesus are being, are being saved out of Artemis worship. And so there's a learning curve there, right? You take people that have been going to the Temple of Artemis, and now they're going to church, and Paul's like, hey, um, just so you know, it doesn't exactly work the same here as it does there. There's some things that we ought to correct. And when women would go to the Temple of Artemis, it would be with seduction in mind. It would be with a, a show of wealth, a show of power, a show of position. Remember that, that element of women being higher than men and dominant. 
women in Ephesus were taught, your power over men is in your appearance, it is in sex, it is in seduction, and this is what you use to exert control. Your body is your greatest tool for gain. Paul, in the face of that, says, actually, that's not, that's not true. That's not how it works in, in the church of Jesus Christ. Here, we are all equal. And so I don't want you to come into the church trying to show off. I don't want you to come into the church dressing purposely like, hey, everybody, look at me. I don't want you to come in here to try to exert dominance. We come in here all with the same attitude, one that is, he calls, quiet. This is another uh, uh, issue that, that, that we come to here where he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is addressing how they would exert dominance, okay? But let's, let's not uh, miss that here in verse 11 it says, let a woman learn quietly. But then in verse 2, so if we, if we rewind to verse 2, he says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So he addresses everyone first and says, we are all to be quiet. And then uses the same Greek word to say, and women are to be quiet. Men and women are both being addressed separately here and being told, we learn in quietness. We lead quiet lives. We don't come in here with a dominant attitude. This is not about women being quiet all the time. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is discussing head coverings, and he says that men should not wear them while they prophesy in church, but women should wear them when they prophesy in church. So clearly Paul has a category for women prophesying in church. He clearly has a category for women speaking. Again, if we go back to the story of Apollos, Priscilla is part of the, the teaching crew there. Clearly there's a category for Paul about this. So this is not a case in which Paul is saying, hey, all you women, shut your mouths. And oh, by the way, don't put on any jewelry because that's immodest. And modest is hottest, so make sure that you're not braiding your hair or putting on any makeup. He's saying, no, we, we all come in here with the same attitude of quietness and submission and respect. When, when we look at an email that's ripped out of a context, and we don't look at these cultural clues, we're going to really miss what Paul is trying to get at. So then there's this other mystery in, in this passage, where it says in verse 15, Yet she will be saved through childbearing. They continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is that verse that many have described as being the most difficult to interpret in all of the Bible. Because it brings up a lot of questions, right? What do you mean, saved through childbearing? Is Paul setting up an entire, entirely new category of salvation? How is it that a woman would have her salvation based on having kids? Is he trying to say that women who don't have kids aren't saved? Is he trying to set up a sort of dichotomy in which there's a spiritual element and a physical element? Is it different for women than men? What about women who die in childbearing? What, what happens to them? What could Paul possibly mean by, yet she will be saved through childbearing? It's dead? Well, that's too bad. Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. <laughs> yes. She goes, uh oh, we lost you. And they'll have to catch the podcast. Um, yeah, if one of you would stream from the phone, sure. Um, we can, uh, if you want to write a comment on the live stream that says um, intermission, um, there will be a live stream coming from, well, you're signed in on our church page, right? There. Yeah. Camera died. Just filming. Didn't have your reaction. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's going to be a reaction video. A woman listens to a sermon on her <laughs> Let's see her grimace.
Good? Yep. All right. So, we continue. Sorry for the delay. Um, we're going to get this camera fixed. So we're looking at verse 15. And this mysterious thing where, where Paul says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. And we're trying to figure out what is that, what could that mean? How is it that he is now going against what he's taught everywhere else, which is Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation? And so some people have tried to look at this verse and say, well, maybe what Paul is referring to here is the birth of Jesus. That because Jesus was born of a woman, it is this, this birth of Christ and Christ's salvation that, that he's really referring to. The problem is that doesn't fit the context. And, and it seems like a wild left turn, and why would he say it that way? Being saved through childbearing. And then why would he only specifically point out that that's women and not men? He doesn't say everyone is saved through childbearing because what I'm really talking about is Jesus. So the context doesn't give us that. So we have to, we have to say, okay, well, what could be happening? Going back to this cultural idea of context in the worship of Artemis, one of the things that we find about the worship of Artemis was this. These people believed that Artemis was the goddess who watched over birthing mothers. This was part of her central role in culture. And so, women would come to the temple of Artemis with offerings so that she would protect them from dying in childbirth. Okay, At this time in history, because of childbirth, the life expectancy of women was half. Okay, The number of women who died in childbirth was very, very high. They didn't have modern medicine the same way we do. They didn't have uh, the, the ability to stop a woman from bleeding out. Okay, So a lot of women died at this time during childbirth. And so you can imagine that if you're a woman in, in this time, having a child, as much as it is a great blessing, is also a scary thing. And so, in that motivation, they go to the temple of Artemis, and they say, this is the goddess who will, who will protect me in my pregnancy. This is the goddess who, if I give myself to, if I follow her the way that she tells me to follow her, if I exert my dominance, if I adorn myself with seduction and power, and I give her everything, she will save me in my childbearing. In the face of that, Paul says, that is not how you will be saved. When we see the word through, John Piper makes an interesting um, observation on this based on a commentator named Henry Alford. And he says that being saved through something doesn't necessarily refer to being saved by it, but rather being saved through it as through something dangerous. Right? And he also notes that Paul combines the words being saved and through in the same way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Okay, so there's a dangerous thing that you are saved through. You're in the midst of a dangerous thing, and you're saved through it. So when he says you're saved through childbearing, it's not by means of childbearing, but in spite of, through the engulfing pain of childbirth, he says. And when that's why he goes specifically to continuing in faith. You will be saved in faith, in love, in holiness, and self-control. As you follow the real God, he is the one that saves you. Whether your physical life on earth continues or not, you are saved through this. You're saved to the other side of this as you walk in holiness, as you walk in faith, as you walk in self-control, as you walk in love. And so he corrects all of this orthodoxy, and the orthodoxy of the false teachers that isn't explicitly stated here, whereas all we see is the orthopraxy. And we attack the orthopraxy, and we go, well, what's wrong with this? we got to look at the orthodoxy. Now, understanding then what that truly means, what could be some of the eternal applications for us? How do we take this and say, well, well, how do I now live this out? We ask this question. What ways has worldly thinking led to our faith becoming tainted? 
In today's culture, we do not have the Temple of Artemis, right? We're, we're not all going to the Temple of Artemis. But there absolutely is idolatry. There absolutely are false gods that we worship in our culture. Success, power, individualism. The list goes on and on. Celebrities. What, anything can be an idol. We have idolatry in our culture just as much as they did in Ephesus. And so we have to ask the question, what are the ways that that idolatry infiltrates the way that we are in church? How does that idolatry infiltrate our orthopraxy, how we act, what we say, what we do? One that we've talked a lot about recently is our cultural idolatry of politics, right? When you worship the false god of politics... That idolatry infiltrates how the church operates. We saw that very clearly in the last election cycle, right? Where evangelicals were among the worst people in America. And anyone who denies that is is not being honest, okay? The church people were the ones who were acting the worst because the idol of politics has infiltrated our church. And so to this, Paul might say, I do not permit a political pundit to exercise authority in the church. Not because politics are unimportant, not because because politics are evil, but if they are your God, if they're your idol, then that is going to affect how you live. If that's your God, then you ought to remain silent and learn so that you can forsake that God, so you can leave it behind. Before you try to teach others how to follow the real God, you need to learn first. How about the ways that our culture uh, worships the God of individualism? You are the master of your own destiny. You are at the center. How might that idolatry infiltrate the church? Well, it could lead to things like consumerism. It could lead you to thinking that the church is all about serving your needs. It could lead you to fail to see your part in the mission to serve others. Or it could affect your view of salvation, that that it's something that's based on how good you are. Or it could affect the way that you fail to see how we all belong to each other as a unit. And to that, Paul might say, I do not permit an individualist to exercise authority over a community. Let them learn in silence to lay their idol down before they teach someone else. So when we come to a passage like this, I completely understand and get the initial, ooh, because at face value, it looks like a mansplaining punch. But when we put all of the clues together, what we find is that Paul is addressing a very specific issue going on in the Ephesian church, and that this is not a subjugation of women. It is a putting everyone on an equal playing field, based on not only this, but also on every other passage that he writes, from his story in the book of Acts forward. And so we have to examine this email the same way that we'd examine every other email to find, as cringeworthy as it might seem at the surface, there's really some awesome things going on that apply to every single one of us. And this is one of the reasons why in our church, women will always have a high position. Women will always be respected as equals. Women will always be viewed as being just as important as everyone else. And while there are roles that are described in the Bible, those things are not about value or worth or subjugation or oppression. It is about an experiential analogy of how we follow after Jesus. So, we will hear the voices of women in this church. We will hear the voices of women teaching the Bible in community with one another. We will honor women and respect women and treat them as our equals. And the greatest woman among those is that one back there. So, uh, join me as I close this in prayer.